welcome to The Green Majority. This is M.A. Ma, and I'm here in the studio with Stefan Hostetter, and we also have a special guest today, Vince Schutt from Environmentum. Now, just to be perfectly transparent, Vince and I work together at Environmentum, but the reason why we have Vince in is actually to continue with our Planning to Win series. Stefan and I had started that some weeks ago, and we're having different guests on the show talking about new systems themes and how their work fits within this. So Vince, we're going to start off with a really light question right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your vision for a sustainable and equitable world. And how does the, the new systems narrative or discussions about global systems and changing them or replacing them fit into that vision of, of a sustainable and equitable world? Well, when I think about uh, systems, I think that people need something to kind of grasp hold of because these are, are very, very like big concepts to kind of take hold of. And I just want to actually start by telling a story uh, that was actually told to me when I was in an introduction to anthropology class uh, at the University of Hawaii. Uh, so it was actually the first time that I had ever seen uh, YouTube. Uh, it was a, a PhD student who was teaching this class. And it was actually the, the video Remind Me by uh, a band named Roiksop. And in this video, uh, it depicts a woman's life and all of these things being broken apart. And uh, somehow she's able to go through an entire day with hardly even uh, a single meaningful interaction with another human being. But within the video, you see the vast number of things in the system, in the world that she's actually interacting with just through her food choices, her transportation choices. So I think that that's a good reflection of the complexity of the, of the world that we live in today. And we're in a point with the, uh, the population that is here and the complexity of the structures that we all work in, that at any given point, if there was a single tooth from all of those gears that are grinding that make the, the world tone, then the gears just still kind of keep on moving. So then, like, what does that mean? Uh, I think that this is a, a really valuable, like, place to start when it comes to systems thinking because somehow the human has been, like, removed from all of the systems and uh, that's sort of a, a very dubious place to kind of be at uh, when we're trying to have sustainable systems that value humans. So let's, let's take a bit of a deeper dive into that because our work together at Environmentum really looks at human factors. That's one way to describe it. Looks at people's behavior and motivating them to take up more sustainable behaviors. So what has happened to the human being which ought to be at the center of these systems why have human beings lost their place at the center of the systems? What kind of barriers are being imposed so that we are no longer perhaps as people-centered um, in, our, in our social or economic systems as we should be? Hmm. So the, uh, the people center, like, well, part of it is, is just the, uh, the number of people. We have a society that was built uh, on the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution organizational behavior as a, uh, as a, a science and, and how we manage industry and how do we manage people uh, 
This was something that was happening in the 1800s, and uh, especially with uh, the arrival of the automobile in, in the early 1900s and assembly line technology, people no longer were creating goods from the beginning of a process to the end of the process. So the segmentation of label is really where this all came from. And now we've reached a point so that we can't even make a product by ourselves anymore, that we actually have to be involved in the team to actually make anything of value for the world. And that's, I think, where, where the segmentation really came from. So when we look at, like, what do we want the world to look like in the future, well, does that mean that we go back to a world where uh, I make an automobile from, like, by myself from scratch, or I make, uh, you know, a whatever uh, by myself from scratch? I don't think that that's really where we're going. I think it means that we have to have uh, better ways to interact with each other that aren't built on an 1800s model of how do we extract the most productivity from uh people and then as soon as the, that productivity goes away, um, how do we remove them from the situation as cheaply as possible so that they can be replaced by somebody else so that we can keep a system going? Uh, so it's, it's this very economic kind of question of the, all of these gears toning so that we can have an economic engine that is not allowed to ever stop. It's really, I think, pertinent that you've raised sort of the industrial revolution as a starting point for some of these these concepts, which are now so absolutely ingrained in our society mm -hmm. and really shape how we view productivity or even success mm -hmm. on a societal level. One of the one of the themes that we talked quite a bit about um, in the first episode is is food. Mm -hmm. It's something that really connects people to the natural world and actually has the power to pull them out of this kind of thinking, this kind of system. And, you know, your your point about this sort of being separated or divorced from the things that we're producing. So, for example, we are so far removed from what we eat. Mm -hmm. So we're being part of a, an assembly line. It's not mm -hmm. like we... We grow food, we eat food, mm -hmm. we hunt food, we eat food or gather it. You get the idea. But there's this total sep separation in the agricultural industrial complex from the things that are most essential in life. And it's really hard for people to try to kind of conceive how the things that should have the greatest value to us in society have actually lost a lot of value. Mm -hmm. And, and how far removed we are from them. So how do we start bringing people back to a closer conception of what's actually essential for human life? How do we start reconnecting them to these things? Because this kind of industrial complex that's developed in our society, it isn't prevalent ac across all societies. It's very far-reaching now, but it hasn't been at the roots of all societies' values. So what can we do as people in, living in Western society to establish those kind of reconnections? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that there's something really great in a, in a good question, like the, the question that I, I'm hearing from you. And my answer to it is actually that sometimes the best way is not uh, what do I have in me, uh, but what do I have to ask somebody else so that they can uh, figure it out for themselves? I mean, the question that was popping up in my mind as I was listening to to what you were saying was this concept of environment 
And somebody at, at some point asked me the question, where is the environment? And it's a question that I personally like love just because it, to me, it's like, oh yeah, well, the environment is everywhere. And it's something that's so obvious because we know we're smart people. Uh, the environment is outside uh, a window. The environment is, is the air that I'm breathing right now. The environment is uh, the microbiomes within my body uh, and the symbiosis between uh, the different little uh, bacteria that are in my body that help me to live. So I think breaking down this sort of the environment is a different place is something that is highly valuable. So, I mean, when we look at like a big picture systems type of a structure of, of what does that look like, uh, doing that on an individual level is, is one thing. Doing that on a big picture level is this concept that, that I've been thinking a lot about, which is eco-consciousness. Um, and it's really a cultural transition towards what is it like to just not have to have thinking about the green way of doing something be a chore, but rather that that's just the way that you think that it's supposed to be done. And it's, it's not a chore, that's just the way that it's expected to be done and that's what people do. There's an expectation there. And uh, maybe we, we left that behind. And it seems like societies are, are now realizing that this is a lot of what was in uh, First Nations um, cultures because in order for them to be able to survive for millennia, these were the types of systems that would be needed, is, is these systems that kind of honor the land, honor uh, the biodiversity, and that is the thing that actually protects you. And we've gotten away from that based upon an economy uh, of fossil fuels, which are incredibly uh, powerful, and they are the society that this, uh, the really the energy that has built this society. So as those energy resources kind of reach their horizons, then we are left with, well, what are we supposed to go back to? And this is why people are talking, I think, so much about the values of First Nations communities, because we're realizing that we actually need those values now for survival as a society. Yes, and that's something we, we did discuss also in the first episode. It's, Of course, we, we've been looking at the struggle of indigenous people globally to um, maintain traditional ways, historical ways, um, but it's not just about protecting those ways. If we are smart as, as a species, we will learn from those ways as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, protecting people's rights is absolutely important as a value. But from the survival perspective, we need to take up these ways very quickly, actually. And just building on that, one thing I just want to discuss as a concept before we go to a break is this notion of individual versus collective. Mm -hmm. And maybe there shouldn't be a versus in there, mm -hmm. but we really have in Western society put a lot of emphasis on the individual. And we've actually historically looked down on societies that take a more collective approach. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we reach people in the context of a society that has put so much emphasis on individual autonomy, whether it's real or not, people are made to feel that they, they are autonomous, and they're entitled to look after themselves immediately or their nuclear family, and they don't have a responsibility to think collectively. 
what what is the beginning of tackling that problem or that challenge that is before us? Well, I uh, when I think about like individual versus collective, I I just start to think about like these are like na- uh, national differences. Like there are certain societies that are individualistic, and there are certain societies that are collectivist, and there's so many different cultural challenges to to face. Um, I'm not even sure that that's actually the levo that that I I would pull. Uh, I think that there's so many like levos that we have to pull that it's it's at the systems level that it gets confusing uh, for people to say like, well, how do we actually change a society from being individual to collectivist? And I'm not even sure that that that's viable or feasible to do. Like for example, in American culture the individualistic nature of the culture is the core celebration of the culture. So then I'm not sure that that would be the thing that I would want to change or the lever that I'd want to pull. It might not be an entry point. Yeah, maybe not an entry point. Maybe what we would want to do is say, how can we have an individualistic society that can still embrace other values and still be a good society, a good sustainable society? Um, how can I, uh, maybe I think as I'm thinking and contemplating this, it, as long as there's empathy in the individual, then you can have an individualistic society as long as the individuals uh, practice some form of empathy in their, their individualistic natures. So I think that that would be, we should be teaching uh, empathy for young people at a at a very young age, potentially even before the the entry into LM, elementary school, and really creating different uh, educational sort of scenarios where where you can celebrate the individual's contribution in like a team setting, but they can also not have to have their success be overshadowed or overshadow somebody else's success, that they can have a little bit of both. Uh, yeah. Where my mind goes when you talk about building empathy in young people is that perhaps building that kind of empathy will enable them to see themselves within a greater system or community. So Absolutely. that's maybe how we knock out the versus between individual and sort of collectivist concepts mm. that I as an individual don't have trouble seeing myself as being part of a community system or part of a family system mm-hmm. or part of society. And I feel like our ability to do that has been hampered by the ideology that's really been so widespread in, in the Western world. but to reimagine ourselves as part of a whole system and wanting that system to be healthy, both for other people, but also for ourselves, uh, are concepts that should be in harmony. So I'm going to let you mull that over. It's time for our first music break. We'll be right back. And we're back. Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5. This is, of course, Stefan. Uh, we're in studio with M.A. Ma and Vince Shutt. And we're talking about, we're sort of moving from sort of the bigger systems into more of a, a conversation sort of about education, because environmental works in education. Uh, and so how would, you, how would you see that as a, how, what does sustainable education look like? Was it based on, do we even have grades? What, like, in your mind, what, what would be the first couple things you do? And then also for, start actually with what the whole system could look like in your mind. 
Well, if we wanted to picture a, uh, an educational system far in the future, uh, I think that we have to look at not just the educational, uh, like the students, we have to look at the, the entire infrastructure. This is a massive infrastructure. It's one of the largest infrastructures in our entire society that every single member of our society, with very few exceptions, are going through this structure. So that structure is including the people who are training the teachers. So these are the, the universities. Uh, this is the academics who are studying and researching what education will look like in the future. This is the bureaucracies that run the educational system. And of course, this is the students themselves, which is the most important part. And uh, the part that I, I leave to the end, but. Uh, I definitely want to get back to the students themselves as sort of the last thing that I would say, but I think that the first thing that we really need to start with is the actual academic literature around education. So I actually was just reading a paper, uh, a peer-reviewed paper on autonomy of students in the classroom, and this was a paper that came out in like the 1980s. And I was seeing uh, concepts within here where it was advocating and talking about the need for students to be able to be an autonomous learner, to be able to choose uh, and feel like they have a role in decision-making within the classroom. So 20 years or plus really has gone by since this paper has come out, yet uh, very recently, as of uh, less than a year ago, I've had conversations from profound forward-thinking students uh, who were uh, discussing some of the problems that they feel in schools. And it was very clear to me that there's not a lot of autonomy in schools. So we need an educational system that can quickly and effectively, like an entrepreneur does, take whatever it is out there intellectually that's available and bring all of that into the fold and quickly tone that into results and a, uh, an improving structure. And that is one of the biggest things I think that we don't have right now. There's a lot of things that we could do differently, but we haven't actually been utilizing the, the research well. So that would be where I would start. That's interesting. I was actually at a uh, I was it was a documentary actually which was in watching which included a a bit from a principal of a school and he he was saying that uh, one of the jokes in education uh is that uh, if you brought someone from the 1500s into into modern day life the only two things they'd recognize is their church and the classroom um <laughs> and and there's oh, and there's boy. and there's certainly some truth in that right there, oh, the truth holds right there yeah uh, you know it, it's 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 amazing for how long we've decided that the single teacher talking to 20 30 students is the is the way that all education should and does and must happen mm -hmm. and so and so how would you flip that so what um before we start getting to exactly what environmentum does, is there any sort of how would you start to move towards that sort of more like how do we get that research into into schools? Well, so if we just try to continue like taking the research, say this is the way that it should be done. Uh, that, well, that's what we've been trying to do for decades, and you know to call up the old adage, uh, you know, 
doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, well, that would make you crazy. So let's not do that. Uh, what we need is we need a new level. And the level that we need is the young people themselves. And uh, the young people know the problems that are there. And I want to actually discuss a recent experience that I had uh, with a young person who I was interacting with uh, quite frequently. Uh, she was actually a, a summer student of Environmentum. And we went through an on-the-job training uh, for this summer student. And at first, well, the process that we went through was, was very evocative in nature. We wanted the young people to be able to take the question and find the answer for themselves. And this isn't a new idea. This is like Socrates. This is ancient, okay? <laughs> so we had all of this knowledge before, but we've stopped using it. So that's the knowledge uh, transfer concept that we were using, which was how do we educe from uh, somebody's mind, helping them to find the answers for themselves. So uh, I recently um, just uh, debriefed as she was headed off to university, and uh, that was just yesterday, and she said, well, at first I was really annoyed when you did that. I, she was in a situation where she had an expectation that this training would be like all other training that she got in university, that I'm supposed to sit here and I'm supposed to be a receiver. And when you do that, that creates a specific mindset of that I am not powerful and I don't have the uh, ability to actually act and, and make decisions and creative problem solving. It's a special type of learning that is not actually very uh, useful at all in modern society because when do we need to just be a passive um, digestor of, of information where we can just spit out facts uh, that really that type of information is almost completely useless now because we have Google so <laughs> uh, why are we actually teaching like this it's it really offers very little now by the end she said that she was actually very happy that she did this, and she's learned so many skills, and she's also learned a lot of confidence in her ability to actually be able to answer a question by herself. So I think that that really is our pathway in. I think that this story presents it, which is we need to go through the period where young people are sort of saying, wow, this is different than it was before. And whenever you make a change, even a change for the better, it could be a change for the massively better. There will still be resistance in the system. But if you really go through a process where you're like, actually, we want your voice. Actually, we want your voice. And you go through that and you actually demonstrate in how you interact with young people that you actually do want their voice, then all of a sudden, they start to have their own inner monologue. They start to have their own inner voice that says, well, this is what the way that I think that things should be. And now you actually get to start the process of real learning. You get to have a conversation with a young person who said, well, I think the world should be this way. And now you get to have a discussion about why do they think that. May, uh, cool. And so that's actually a great segue into uh, what actually Environmentum does, because that's this kind of uh, conversation in, in, and I believe it's called motivational interviewing mm -hmm. is sort of is, is the basis of, of what the organization does, to my understanding. So can you give the audience an explanation of actually what you do? OK, yeah. So uh, motivational interviewing, uh, a lot of people uh, will be in a situation where they'll they'll think that they know what motivational interviewing 
is because they know what the word motivational is and they know what the word interviewing is. Like the word interview right now. I, I'm not, I, I, am I motivating you? Am I doing it? This is it? Uh, actually, this isn't it. Ah. Uh, I, I am motivated right now, but this is not a motivational interview. So, so motivational interviewing is something that is uh, decades old. In reality, in my heart and in my mind, motivational interviewing is really something that was started uh, Socratically. Hmm. So when uh, Socrates was uh, teaching people, and not like I was there, it's not like I saw him. (laughs) (laughs) So, but from my understanding is that he would uh, ask a question. And when you ask somebody a question, then they interact with that in a, in a specific way where the brain creates the answer. And then the answer is that was what you were looking for. You were looking to create a brain pattern in your conversational partner that would help them to learn something new. So motivational interviewing, really it started um, in the 1970s, 1980s uh, as a way to help people in a uh, alcohol cessation type of a scenario to be able to uh, find their own motivation for alcohol cessation. Uh, Since then, it actually ballooned into everything from smoking cessation, uh, all types of different other uh, addiction scenarios. Uh, It quickly ballooned to be the global standard for uh, patient care, so uh, nurses, doctors utilizing this with patients for all types of different health scenarios, everything from uh, adults uh, and seniors walking more for heart health to uh, uh, young people in diverse scenarios, uh, reducing sugar consumption so they won't be at risk for uh, juvenile diabetes. So the uh, applications are profound. So environmentum is taking these types of concepts which are in the scientific psychology literature and proven to work, and we're applying them to an environmental education scenario. And the real reason that we're doing that is we look at the environmental paradigm and how environmentalists sort of what is the stereotypical communication from an environmental person. And that communication is largely perceived to be one that is confrontational and or scientific and or fear-based. So science, fear, confrontation. Mm. And uh, what we've learned uh, and the reason that really what inspires environmentum is that we know from the scientific literature that those approaches do not create motivation in people. Mm. The way that you create motivation in people is by helping them to find their own internal motivations and that's the way that those motivations stick around. So, so can you try that out on me? Do you do you want to like run through like a like a quick five minute motivational interview? I would be happy to run through a quick five minute. So, uh, well, in that case, what I would need to do mm-hmm. is I would need uh, something from you, mm-hmm. which is something I hope that you can be genuine and I hope that you can uh, open up just a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, share something, maybe any little type of thing in your life where you've thought about making a change on it, but you just quite haven't gotten there yet, and you're right. not sure why. 
Okay. Uh, sure. Let's use uh, let's use a pretty pretty simple example. Sure. Uh, I while I while I still try while I try at home certainly I don't cook a lot of meat. I still actually eat meat when I go out uh, on out out into the world, mm-hmm. uh, and I know. I know the science. I know generally this is a bad idea, uh, and yet I'm still doing it. Uh, and so let's just use that. Uh, we'll use yeah. we'll use sort of we'll use let's use meat eating in a general sort of outside of my house context. Okay, so uh, so it sounds like what I'm hearing from you is that there's this uh, desire to be in line with your values, and you feel like this meat eating. Uh, might not necessarily be in line with your values, and you really try to practice that at home, but sometimes uh, outside of the home, it becomes uh, a little bit harder to be in this eat less meat kind of category. Uh, yeah, but if I'm being perfectly honest, it's also it, it it has the only reason I don't eat at home is because it seems like it's more work. Uh, so it, I wouldn't even give myself that much of a pass. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, but yes. Okay, so. Uh, and it's also so it sounds like it's a little bit easier to uh, to do these things at home. Yes. Uh huh. So what is what are some things that make it easy for you to uh, to eat less meat at home? Largely, it's actually it's more work to eat meat at home. Uh, you have to sort of go out of your way to get meat. You have to make sure you cook it correctly so you don't give yourself salmonella poisoning. Uh, you know all of these sort of things that 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 require you to actually go out of your way to do this. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so what I'm hearing from you right now, I'm going to interlude the motivational interview for a moment. Mm. So part of a motivational interviewing exercise is that there has to be a large amount of genuineness. Mm. Uh, so w- what I'm hearing right now is that there is uh, slightly less motivation than what I originally thought ah. around making this change, which is okay. And uh, when uh, environmentalists normally have this type of an interaction, they'll start to try to list off reasons, and you won't hear me do that at all because uh, it's not my reasons aren't important. Mm. So what I would do at this point in time is something called a decisional balance, which is to ask you what are all of your reasons that you want to eat meat and go through those and kind of validate them and then... uh, after that point, we'll ask you about your reasons to eat meat. And the reason that we would do that is because I really need to learn a little bit more about how you think about your your meat consumption and uh, learn more because what I heard right now were reasons to kind of stay the same. Mm. So I want to validate those reasons and also help you explore your reasons for change. Mm. Do you want to go through that for another minute? Or? Uh, yeah, sure. So I guess the, the strongest argument would be simply that in when you're going out to eat more often than not, you have, say, one vegetarian option and a whole bunch of other options. And so you can it's, it's, it's much easier to say not eat beef than to eat entirely vegetarian. And now in Toronto, that remains remains uh, a weak argument. And so I certainly think you are correct in assuming that a percentage of this is just me not being reasonable. And and part of the reason why I chose this is because I know that. Okay, so well, what I'm hearing from you is a couple different things, which is uh, uh, there's this access to the type of food that you're looking for is maybe not quite at the what you would be hoping for. So mm. if the access to the type of food that you may prefer to eat, uh, if that's sort of like this vegetarian type of a, of a meal, then maybe that's not quite the access level. And one thing that I just wanted to point out is uh, I, I heard you say that that I made an uh, assumption. So if uh, if you felt that I made an assumption about your sort of how you feel about these things, and I'm sorry, that's mm-hmm. not my intention. Mm-hmm. Um, I really uh, think that uh, your reasons uh, for both eating meat and not 
really, you have your reasons, right. and those are your reasons. So, um, so are there other reasons that you have that you are uh, eating uh, meat? What other reasons do you have that you meat? It's uh, I guess it's connected to a lot of uh, food that I've eaten in the past that I enjoy. I guess you know there's a lot of there's a, there's a certain percentage of the meals that I know I enjoy, and and a majority of them include meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I'm going to a place and I don't fully know what to order, more often than not, you'll go to something you already you've had before. At least I will. Okay. Uh, so there's sort of like this behavioral I know so it's sort of like that's what you know. Yeah. You get sort of like a gut feeling, a gut understanding of like, I know this, I know the flavors, I know what this is gonna taste like. Mm-hmm. So what what about reasons uh that you have to eat less meat? Like what are some of those reasons? Well, those are a wide range from the, you know, the obviously the carbon impact that exists within any sort of meat eating, uh, the proof, you know, the, the, the amount of information that is out there to show that the number one thing you can do basically other than flying less is eating less meat uh, in regards to the greenhouse gases. Uh, you know, there's the obviously the point of animal cruelty that that is also involved in a lot of these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, to some extent, my entire ethos is based off knowing reasons why not to eat meat. Like that's the funny thing about this, right? It's 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 really everywhere. Okay, so so there's the greenhouse gases, there's the animal cruelty, there's a lot of these reasons, and it, it, you said it's like your very ethos. So it sounds like this is like very deep in the core for you of like this desire to eat less meat is 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 kind of deep seated. Um, so you have these reasons of, of sort of like access, knowing the flavors, and those are some of your reasons why you don't uh, or why you actually do eat meat. And then you have these other reasons, these uh, like your, your values that I'm really hearing, which is uh, your ethos uh, at your very core, this uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the fact that this is the green majority media and you want to be able to kind of practice what you preach and be in line with yourself. So are, are some of these reasons maybe more important to you than the others, like on either side? What a interesting question. Um, I would say yes. Uh, you know, I think the... I think if I'm being, if I was being truly honest with myself, I, I would say that the that there's, that I don't actually believe I have any strong reason to continue doing this, and it is, I think it's your, you correctly identified behavioral inertia in some extent as as, as a major reason why that it, that it remains doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly think that there's a that there's definitely a much stronger uh, piece of me that 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 would prefer if I didn't, and yet here I am still doing it, uh, and so it's, it, I think what I'm struggling with is sort of that, you know, knocking down that behavioral inertia, shall we say. Yeah, okay, so um, just uh, in favor of going through, so what we've just done here, this is uh, the first two steps of motivational interviewing. So there's a four-step pathway that we would want to follow in a motivational interview, we'd want to engage, and we are engaging, we we've met before. And uh, then next, after we engage, we sort of know each other, we have a trusting relationship. Uh, After that, we are focusing, we're focusing in on a specific problem. So here we were focusing in on uh, the meat eating, uh, your reasons for and against, and uh, starting to kind of highlight, uh, how do you feel about this? Our next step, if we were to continue, would be to start to evoke uh, some more thoughts that you have about what are some different uh, things that are maybe holding you back and uh, really start to unpack those a little bit more, ultimately in the direction of building a plan and helping you to kind of just take the, the smallest new step towards this eating less meat 
in a new scenario in a way where instead of you feeling like you're giving something up, uh, being able to take on that behavior in a way that feels like you're actually getting something new and that makes you happier and more in line with your values. That's what motivational interviewing does is it really helps to kind of um, move away from this behavioral inertia and help you find a new way so you can kind of feel better about your choices and like they're more in line with what you believe yourself. Amazing. Uh, thank you. Uh, so we're going to go back to a music break right now. Uh, and we'll come back and A, find out sort of about uh, how you plan on bringing this, this kind of interviewing into the classroom. Um, and then a couple just fun questions at the end. Um, exactly, yes. Uh, so you are listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 or on one of our wonderful radio syndicates or perhaps even on our podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. We are in studio with M.A. Ma and Vince Shutt uh, of Environmentum. Thank you all so much. And for our producer, Dave Hostetter, what, what are we listening to? And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. Stefan Hostetter here, continuing our conversation with Vince Schutt uh, about sustainable education and, and environmentum specifically, which is, which is your project. Uh, so you, we spent the last five minutes you sort of giving a brief example of what motivational interviewing can kind of sound and feel like. Uh, and now, obviously, you aren't... Uh, well, maybe you are. Uh, how, I was going to say you aren't presuming that you will be able to talk to every single young person in the world uh, personally. Um, so maybe no. if that is your plan, then, then I'm very intrigued in how you plan on doing that. Uh, but, but obviously that's not, uh, that, that seems a little, you're not Santa Claus. You can't stop all time and go to everyone's house uh, and then have a talk about climate change because the North Pole is, you know, melting. Um, but so instead of that, how do you sort of see, bring, how do you plan on bringing motivational interviewing and the sort of way of, uh, encouraging people to take some more environmental actions into the classroom. Well, that's uh, actually something that we're working on a lot. So we've been doing uh, motivational interviewing in classrooms uh, for a couple years now. And uh, that's been sort of a, a one-on-group scenario. So one facilitator, an average of 26 students. And uh, so that's uh, a little bit better scaling than one-on-one, -on -one, uh, but would still be quite difficult to bring that to uh, everyone. We're, we're still pretty much in the Santa Claus scenario with that. Yeah, so. you still need uh, whatever 7 billion divided by yeah. 26 is. Yeah, yeah. so that's, uh, that's still Santa Claus territory. So um, to really uh, move out of Santa Claus territory, we've really gained a lot of loaning as an organization over the past uh, many years that we've been doing this now. And uh, We've also known that uh, motivational interviewing uh, in the scientific literature has been clearly demonstrated to be effective when delivered uh, through a computer user interface, and uh, that's where we are intending uh, to go next. So uh, we feel that uh, that can actually be potentially even uh, of higher value than a one-on-group scenario because uh, a one-on-user interface scenario we can design that user interface to be very evocative. Uh, we can also design that user interface to uh, customize the type of experience for each individual, which actually is something that is uh, significantly harder to do than uh, it would be in a one-on-group scenario like we're currently doing now. So even though our work in classrooms has been effective, we've demonstrated a 25% increase in both motivation and self-efficacy uh, in young people using validated uh, uh, evidence-informed metrics. 
we feel that we can probably do even better uh, with a well-designed user interface that could then be uh, vastly more scalable. So that's really the direction that we want to go is to create this into a, uh, a web portal or an interface that uh, young people would be able to interact with and by going through the process also find their intrinsic motivations to take on environmentally responsible behaviors. And so, obviously, you, you sort of speak as uh, you speak from uh, from experience of doing this for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And what I find often in these sort of these things that you know, when you say that, who would say they don't want that, right? Like, who in their right mind is going to go to so like, you know, what I don't want motivated young people. You know, like that, that's not that seems like a pretty generally uh, accepted, uh, or at least I can only imagine encouraged experience, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and yet, and yet, you know, and yet here we are, uh, you know, and 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 we you are not. Uh, you, know, you had time on, on a Saturday to come and talk to me, which means that I can at least imagine <laughs> that you're experiencing, uh, you know, that you that, that you are not yet running the world. Um, and so, and so, what are some of these the the, the barriers that are sort of fa- that you're facing and that you're trying to sort of work through to to bring this you know motivational tactic or 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 way to encourage environmental action that you know again everyone wants to live in everyone wants a world to exist. I think again, at least ninety nine point nine percent of people, um, and everyone's you know been motivated children seems to be a, a very positive thing uh so so what are, what's the barriers that you're experiencing well i i'm really happy that you asked that actually uh so um to answer that i actually want to um maybe even pull back to the to the big picture level just for a moment and uh, and talk a little bit about uh like the finance of of organizations nonprofits. um so we are a Charitable organization. Uh, we're part of uh, the Tides Canada Shared Platform. Uh, and as a, a charitable organization, for us to be able to get financing, we have to continually be in competition uh, to be able to get grants. And what we find is that the way that grants are being evaluated is much like the way that education is done in systems, which is uh, all of the peer-reviewed scientific literature, which is uh, this incredible vast body of knowledge, which has so many solutions just waiting for us to pick it up and use them. Uh, The foundations are also not able to do that. They're sort of hamstrung and really like all these different types of people in society at each level are really hamstrung by their positions. So if you're uh, a foundation leader, and you have to uh, distribute $10 million to uh, a variety of different programs, you're actually feeling this massive financial downward pressure uh, because you have very little staff, you have to spend all of your resources either marketing out your program or uh, getting people to kind of like submit their things. So ultimately you're going to get a hundred million dollars worth of submissions and you're only going to be able to finance uh, like five ten million dollars worth of them so ultimately you're only funding five or ten percent of the organizations so if a hundred organizations fill out a grant and five percent of them get funded and it takes somewhere between a week to a month to be able to write a competitive grant, then there's 19 weeks or 19 months worth of wasted time 
from all of the organizations that filled out a grant application that didn't get funded. So I'm arguing that foundations, the way, and the entire granting structure of the nonprofit world is actually destroying more value than it is creating because all of that time spent on writing grant applications is actually time that could be spent just delivering value. But we're also forced into a situation where to be able to fund our work, uh, and as I said earlier in the interview, to be able to create anything of value, you need to be able to have interactions with other people uh, so you have the skill sets necessary to make the, the right sort of uh, product. So we are really caught in this rock in this hard place, which is how do we actually get funding when we have to write a grant when we're being evaluated on a system that is built on literature that is either not there or we're just going with somebody's sort of inclination of what they think is important while we're doing work that's based on evidence. So that, even as I say it, it sounds sort of like a, a complaint. And that's really not my intention. Really, my intention is to kind of say that we actually need to change our financial system as well in the way that we fund new work. So that way, uh, people have more autonomy in society to be able to decide, okay, this is the work that's important and it's valid work and it needs to be done. So how can we kind of re-envision a financial structure that allows projects like Environmentum to be able to thrive instead of continually trying to tread water or say, where are we going to get the $300,000 or so that we would need to be able to go and get computer scientists and information technology specialists to help us to build this sophisticated platform we want to build. Hmm. Wow, that's a that's quite an answer. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're, we're coming close-ish to the end, uh, but I want to get one more question before I sort of, sort of give you the opportunity to do sort of your general pitch of where they can find out about you. And that last question, uh, and I, I, I'm going to hope, I think I'm going to try to make this a question we ask everyone we interview in this whole process, uh, which is, why are you doing this? Uh, what 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 about this brings you joy? What's the fun part about this? If you had to like, if you had to explain to us, you know, why why this was fun, uh, or or why someone else should pick up the torch and do the same thing you're doing, uh, what what is it that sort of that gets your sort of that when you you sort of finish and you're like, yes, this is exactly this is why I do this, I guess. Okay, I I, I have a great story and I, it's it's actually quite succinct here. So. When I first started down this pathway, I actually wrote to the founder of Motivational Interviewing, who is, uh, his name is William Miller. And well, I said to him, I said, when I did this motivational interview for the first time in, in a classroom setting, it, it just it felt good. So I, I, I wanted to show my gratitude to William Miller for kind of creating this system and, and helping me to find it. And uh, what he wrote back to me is that, well, the feeling good part isn't really so much from the motivational interviewing, but a part of what motivational interviewing is really built on, which is uh, this Carl Rogers, who was a psychologist uh, before um, it, it's largely at the base of, of motivational interviewing. And he had a theory called universal positive regard. So when you look at other people, you see the positive. And 
uh, also within motivational interviewing is this concept of autonomy, which is I don't get to choose for you uh, what you decide to do. So when we did our motivational interview before, I wasn't choosing whether you're going to eat meat or not. I believe in you genuinely, your right and power to decide for yourself. So you have the autonomy to decide for yourself. And I also am going to view you positively that uh, you're going to make the best decision for you, even if that decision is to eat meat or not eat meat, because ultimately I think that you're going to make the best decision for yourself. So it feels good to do motivational interviewing and it doesn't feel good to confront people. So why are we confronting people? Hmm. Let's just stop and let's actually look to our neighbors and say, I believe in you and that's why I'm doing this. Okay, amazing. So uh, then I guess the, that that leads me to the last question, uh, which is really just, um, so someone's now listened to, to about 40, no, 57 minutes of you speaking um, <laughs> and, uh, and and want to support you and want to know more uh, and all this sort of things. Where can they go and, and what can they, and, and, and is there, do you have a call to action? What, what do you want them to do? Well, we are at environmentum.org, and that's uh, it's a world mass of like environment and momentum. But there's this you drop the middle N on environment. <laughs> we actually just bought environmentum.org as well, but we aren't redirecting it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but environmentum.org. Um, and I guess the call to action um, would be if you want to sign up for our list, learn a little bit more about what we're doing, and if you want to. Uh, learn more about motivational interviewing. Uh, periodically, we have motivational interviewing training opportunities, and uh, that might be a great way for you to get your feet wet to learn more about this. And uh, helping environmental people and people who are just kind of uh, thinking about this maybe a little bit more often than other people in society, uh, we can, um, as environmental, help uh, environmentalists to sort of take on these communications principles so that we can, uh, you know, at first do no harm. So kind of roll with the resistance with our people in our network and, uh, and help them to kind of find their own motivation. So that might be my call to action now is uh, sign up on the web page and, uh, and come to one of our trainings and, and meet us. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, The Green Majority on CUT 89.5 FM. Uh, so again, this is on an ongoing series called Planning to Win. And and what I'm going to call out to all our listeners at the, at the end of this is one of the things we want to do is actually hear your visions of sustainable future. Uh, what does it look like? What's happening? Are there community gardens? Is there is there gardens flying through the sky? Uh, are you eating meat still at a restaurant? Uh, all of these questions, uh, any sort of thought you have are highly encouraged in part because what we're looking for is if you tell us something we want to go out and find someone doing that and letting you letting you hear from them too so please reach out to us and let us know uh thank you so much so much for listening and this has been Stephen hostetter in studio with ma ma and vincent shutt of environmentum thank you all so much uh and have a good green week everybody